I was working in town one afternoon, attending some business affairs. I heard a commotion just a couple streets over and wondered what's happening there. A young man was running from in that direction and stopped just to catch his breath. I asked him to tell me what was the hurry. He smiled up at me as he said, I was trying to catch the crippled man. Did he run past this way? He was rushing home to tell everyone what Jesus did today. And the mute man was telling myself and the deaf girl he's leaving to answer God's call. It's hard to believe, but if you don't trust me, ask the blind man, he saw it all. Ask the blind man, he saw it all. My friend, if the troubles and burdens you carry are heavy and dragging you down, You've tried everything you can possibly think of, but there's no relief to be found. That very same Jesus that altered the future of the blind man, the deaf, and the lame is still reaching out in your hour of trouble. One touch and you're never the same. You'll be trying to catch that crippled man. Yes, he ran past this way. He was rushing home to tell everyone what Jesus did today. And the mute man was telling myself and the deaf girl he's leaving to answer God's call. It's hard to believe, but if you don't trust me, ask the blind man, he saw it all. Just ask the blind man, he saw it all. All right, appreciate all of the work on the music. All right, let's uh, get our Bibles. Um, <laughs> I don't know exactly where to start, so uh, you'll just need your Bible. I promise we'll get there in, a, in just a little bit. Uh, let's pray, and then uh, we're having an unusual kind of uh, subject we're going, going to tonight. Uh, we're going to kind of depart from our, our topic on Acts to go in a different direction. So let's pray together. And then we'll look at this subject together. Our Lord, thank you for the chance to meet together. Thank you for your word, Lord, that centers us and that keeps us close to just exactly what your will is for us. And I pray, Lord, as we look at these things in the scripture, that you would uh, give us illumination and understanding and uh, encourage your people, Lord. These are your people and uh, you have bought them at, at a, such a high price. And Lord, there, there we are all so valuable to you. And Lord, we pray that you would bless your people and you would give peace and grace and strengthen them, Lord, to live for you. And uh, Lord, give us help and grace as we look at your word tonight and this subject in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you know what Lent is? Raise your hand if you know what Lent is. I see some sheepish hands kind of going up and Sister Amy's like, I know what that is. Uh, so what we're going to talk about tonight is we're going to talk about the subject of Lent. Lent. Uh, for those of you that do not know what Lent is, I'm going to describe it for you, and we're going to kind of examine this subject from the Bible. Now, the hard part about a subject like this 
is that some subjects in some subjects that we that we must address and have an answer for are are arguments from absence of scripture. You know, it's easy when someone asserts that the Bible says something, then you can examine the verses and compare other scriptures and and that kind of thing. But Lent is not that way. Lent is just not that way. It's more of what the Bible doesn't say than what it does say. But I think we, uh, there, are some int- there are some interesting and important points on this subject that I want to look at. And the reason I'll bring this up is because uh, almost none of you, including myself, are, are, uh, are aware that we are in the Lenten season right now. Because Ash Wednesday, as they call it, has passed. And we're in that gap between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, which is Lent, essentially. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, more and more people are becoming familiar, even people that go to Baptist churches or other kind of maybe Protestant churches, uh, and, and even churches that are non-denominational, are becoming more and more warm to the idea of the liturgical feasts and holidays that... Uh, that have long existed in Roman Catholicism. They're becoming more and more, uh, it's becoming more and more common, even if they themselves are not Catholic. How many of you around uh, Christmas time, before Christmas time, you'll see people talking about Advent calendars and Advent this, and they advertise Advent, and you're like, what is Advent? Of course, you know Advent is the coming of Christ, but but it, it is not the coming of Christ. It's the, it's the liturgical festival about the coming of Christ. And we may have to make a key distinction there. So we're going to look at Lent, which is a different one. But you start hearing this more and more. You, you hear, you'll hear people, have, you'll see people with the ashes on their head. How many of you have seen that? Has anyone seen that recently? And uh, listen, this is, not, this is not just a Roman Catholic thing. This is becoming a, a more and more common in reg, regular churches. But what does the Bible say? Some of you might have family members who have that kind of thing going on. And sometimes even uh, people that practice these things will come to us knowing that, you know, we, we're trying to walk with God and be faithful Christians, right? They'll come to us and with a, an expectation or an assumption what are we going to do for the Lenten season? What will be our Lenten sacrifice? Why don't you have ashes on your, on your head this Wednesday? As if we're expected to take part in that. So we'll see, we'll, we'll see it from the Bible. All right, first thing I want, I want to share with you is what is Lent, okay? What is Lent? Lent is the 40-day-ish period of fasting counted from Ash Wednesday through either Thursday or Saturday of Holy Week. Okay, I use that terminology because the the air quotes because it is not that's not a biblical term, but the Holy Week refers to the week prior to Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. So the triumphal entry into Jerusalem they term Holy Week. I'll be honest with you, I, I am not a fan of terms like this, the coined terms. Uh, I just think they're there's, there's always some sort, of, some sort of thing attached to it that I'm not, I don't really like. And so I just avoid the terms. I'll just say what I say and, and say what I mean and not, not use these coin phrases. Lent is supposed to commemorate 
primarily the 40 days that Jesus fasted in the wilderness, as well as other 40-day fasting periods like Moses on the Mount of Sinai and Elijah. It's marked by fasting from some foods and festivities. The fasting includes abstaining from wine or alcohol. And, you know, again, there's, you have the Catholic way, and you have the Lutheran way, and you have different Protestant denominations have their way. Then you go into Eastern Orthodox, it's totally different. But the, the, the core is the same, okay? So it, it includes abstaining from, from various of these alcohol, meat products, animal products, and sometimes sexual activity. Uh, abstinence from wine uh, is sometimes done, and I quote, in remembrance of the sacred thirst of our Lord on the cross. So because the Lord was thirsty, we're not going to drink alcohol. That's, that's the, the reasoning, okay? That, I'm, I'm just reading it here, okay? Okay, then you have what's called a Lenten sacrifice. A Lenten sacrifice is the giving up of some personal pleasure for the entirety of the 40 days, such as chocolate or coffee or something like that. All right? And there's other practices as well in various kinds of churches, such as almsgiving, special prayers, which when you look at the special prayers, they are liturgical prayers, prayers that are repeated, that are provided to you. You repeat them as a part of, your, as a part of the, uh, the Lent season, and, uh, and uh, especially as it relates to the Stations of the Cross. Who's familiar with the Stations of the Cross? That is not a biblical thing. That is not a biblical thing, but, you know, you go to each one, you say certain prayers and that kind of thing. There are uh, other, other uh, practices during Lent include veiling of religious images in churches, such as crucifixes and other idols. Uh, <laughs> we've studied the second commandment already. We don't need to rehearse that. Listen, if you don't have any idols in your church, you don't have to worry about veiling them during Lent. It makes it easy. Why are y'all laughing? I don't get what you're laughing about. As well as other acts of penance. Penance. Okay. Now, um, let, me, let me just say a little word about this, uh, about this penance. We are going to get into the Bible. Just hang tight, okay? Yeah, hang tight. You have to understand what we're talking about uh, together before we can go, go any further. Penance. Now, you might hear of the word penance and associate it with repentance. Now, penance and repentance are, it's not like your, you know, repentance is doing penance again. That's not what it is. Repentance and penance are related, but penance is not biblical. All right, first of all, not, it's not a biblical idea. But it is an act or set of actions done out of repentance for sins committed. And we might hear that word and think that the word penance is the same as repentance, but it is not. Penance, here now, are the prescribed works thought to be done to prove repentance. In other words, it is the work part of repentance. Okay, basically what it means is, basically is, if you have committed a sin and you want to repent, you confess the sin, and as an act of penance, you will be assigned certain works to perform, and having performed those, you will be forgiven. Because those works are supposed to be uh, done in order to demonstrate and prove your sincere repentance. That is just not the biblical definition of repentance. The biblical definition of repentance is in the heart 
one turns from sin. And we know that repentance does have fruit. But the fruit of repentance is what? For instance, if, you're, if you've been drinking alcohol and you repent of drinking alcohol, what's going to be the fruit of repentance? It's going to be this. Get, 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 get. <laughs> Pouring it out, right? Not drinking again. That's the fruit of repentance. It's not a whole other set of actions. You say these prayers and you give this money and you go to do this thing and that thing. You climb upstairs on your bare, bare hands and feet. Yeah, it's not that. This is not... John the Baptist talked about bringing forth fruits worthy or meat for repentance. And he was talking about people turning from sin in their heart, which, which was demonstrated by a change in life. True repentance. That's the way faith is too, right? True faith in the heart is demonstrated by works in faith that follow. Now, though people might deny it, penance is really a way to get forgiveness. It's doing good works to get, to get doing ceremonies to get forgiveness. But the, the acts of penance have nothing to do with the actual evil deeds that are supposedly being repented of. Okay, so that's what I bring up penance because penance is part of Lent. You do these acts to show you're repenting of your sin because you're serious. You're trying to prepare yourself for the coming feast of the Passion and Eastertide. You're like, what is he talking about exactly? Now, the, the festival of Lent starts on Ash Wednesday, which is why the whole ash thing on your head is so important, because that's the, that's the first day of Lent, okay? So that's when people start to uh, practice their fasting, as they call it. Um, it includes uh, the practices of Lent, and churchgoers receive the sign of the cross, in their, on their foreheads, in ash, which is the ash from the burned palm leaves from the previous Palm Sunday, from the previous year. It represents the tradition in the Old Testament of mourning. All right, let's look at that real quick. Look at Esther chapter 4. Look at Esther chapter 4. Now, I know I'm not saying much about it. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get to the examination of it in just a minute. It's after Nehemiah. Esther chapter 4. So this is the pretext for why they do Ash Wednesday. Okay? This is it. Esther 4 verse 1. Hear those pages turning, looking for that book. <laughs> Esther 4 verse 1. When Mordecai <clears throat> perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate for none might enter into the king's clo gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And then you see people on the internet. I have seen this while I was preparing for this. People on the internet, uh, you just do a, a quick search for Ash Wednesday. You'll see, you'll see people standing in a parking lot because they now have ashes to go. You could just pull in and get out of your car in the parking lot and you can stand there and there's this grinning lady and the, the priest or whatever minister is 
putting ashes on this grinning lady's forehead and the irony is lost. It's supposed to be a symbol of mourning. And she's... You see, it is but a ceremony. It is but a ceremony. And this is the scriptural pretext for them doing it. Now, let me give you a little bit of the history of Lent. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. I'm trying to go fast because I know this is boring as, you know, it's boring. The history of Lent. The basic practice of Lent is actually ancient. It's not a modern invention. Listen to this, okay? The apostolic constitutions dated from 375 to 380 A.D., Permit the consumption of, quote, bread, vegetables, salt, and water in Lent. With, quote, flesh and wine being forbidden. This is in the, this is in the fourth century. Okay? So we're talking, we're pushing 2,000 years. You know, 1,700 years. The canons of um, Hippolytus, Dated 336 to 340, authorize only bread and salt to be consumed during Holy Week. All right, look, and then you look at uh, AD 339. Athanasius of Alexandria wrote that the Lenten fast was a 40 day fast that, quote, the entire world observed. And St. Augustine of Hippo, how many of you know St. Augustine of Hippo? That's Augustine. You've heard people say Augustine this, Augustine that. You know, he's really become a big thing here lately. It's like, you know, Augustine, he's like, you know, you have like Paul and then you have Augustine. You know, it's like Paul Augustine right here. Well, maybe. Yeah. But he was way off on some things. Augustine said this, all right? This is just one example. Quote, our fast at any other time is voluntary. But during Lent, if we, we sin if we do not fast. Are you fasting? <laughs> Listen to this. And that was uh, Augustine lived from 354 to 430 A.D. At the Council of Nicaea, which was in A.D. 325, quote, all the churches agreed that... Okay, let me, let me ask you a question here. How many of you know what day Easter is on? Next year. Not a clue. Not a clue. Do you know why? Because in 325, it was... Dis, now, now, just hear me out. Hear me out. In 325, at the Council of Nicaea, it was settled that Easter, which is called the Christian Passover... I'm, I'm get, going somewhere with that should be celebrated on the Sunday following the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Now, how many of you know when the vernal equinox is? Okay, nobody, exactly. How many of you know a verse that says that Easter should be celebrated on the Sunday following the full moon after the vernal equinox? Any verse, please? No verse. Yet it was established in the 4th century, 1,700 years ago, within 300 years of Christ, that that was be the day Easter was, was to be celebrated. This is a quote now. This, is, this quote is actually from the, the, uh, the Bible Museum website, the Bible Museum in, in Washington. 
It was not until A.D. 601 that the start date of Lent was set. Pope Gregory, there's your first key, Pope Gregory, moved the start of Lent to 46 days before Easter and established Ash Wednesday at the same time. So now, I mean, we're at 1,400 years ago. This allowed for 40 days of fasting where only one full meal and no meat are to be consumed with six Sundays counted as feast days when fasting does not apply for a total of 46 days. He also established the tradition of marking parishioners' foreheads with ashes in the shape of a cross. So I can just establish this. The history of Lent, Lent is old. Okay? There is a strong, long-standing tradition of Lent. Okay? We just, have to, we just have to establish that, okay? And that fact is extremely persuasive to some people that they should participate in the festivities of Lent because it is old. Now, let's look at Mark 7. Mark chapter 7. Verse 1. Mark 7, verse 1. The Bible says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. Now, I I just want to remind you. I just want to remind you that Augustine and various traditions of Christendom, Catholicism and various Protestant denominations, Eastern Orthodoxy, have established that Lent is compulsory, required. Okay? It is required. Okay? Now, in Roman Catholicism, it's not a mortal sin, it's a venial sin. I guess that means you can, it's okay to do. I, I, don't, I don't really understand the whole thing, but the Bible says, the soul of sin that shall die, right? Adam and Eve committed a, a venial sin, and God cast them out of the Garden, Garden of Eden, did they not? It wasn't a mortal sin they committed, so I don't know where they get all that. But anyway, I digress. Verse 2, And when they saw some of His disciples eat bread with undefiled, that is to say, unwashing hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Okay, pause there a second. Okay, so... The Jews are finding fault with Christ's disciples because Christ's disciples are not washing their hands in the prescribed way according, as it says, the tradition of the elders. Okay, listen to this tradition. This is the tradition that's that's cited here. It's from the Talmud, the Mishnah Chagiga. Okay, I'm saying that right, I'm sure. Chapter 2, section 5, here's what it says. One must wash his hands by pouring a quarter log of water over them before eating non-sacred food, and for tithes, and for teruma, which is is a Hebrew word. But for eating sacrificial food, one must immerse one's hands in purification waters, such as those of a ritual bath. This tradition is still practiced to this day. It is, by Orthodox Jews. And so the disciples come from, come from the market and they start eating. The Jews are watching and they don't wash their hands. Now, here's the question. Why aren't the disciples washing their hands? It's not like it was a secret rule, 
like everybody knew this is what you're supposed to do. But the question must be asked, why aren't they washing their hands? They are, after all, Christ is a rabbi, right? He's a teacher. He's called rabbi. Why isn't, why isn't he teaching his disciples to wash their hands in the way that is prescribed? Here's what we see from that. He is not respecting the tradition of men. That's what he's doing. He's not submitting to it. Now follow this. Verse 6, He answered and said unto them, Well hath Esaias prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit, now notice verse 7 and verse 8, Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. Notice, notice the contrast the Lord draws, the clear line of, of demarcation and distinction between the commandments of men and the commandments of God. Now, reading verses 7 and 8, let me ask you a question. Do you think the Lord held the commandments of God as binding? Yes. If God had said in the Scripture they were required to wash their hands, the Lord would have been washing His hands and teaching His disciples to. But he, he is not mixing the two. The commandments of God, the Lord, is, the Lord kept every single one from tithing the smallest herbs like, like the Pharisees were known to do. He kept every commandment, right? Because if he, if he did not keep the actual commandments of God, He would have been found, found fault. He would have been faulty and sinful, all right? He kept every commandment of God, but the traditions, on the other hand, the commandments of men, he did not respect. He did not. The Lord, and even when he was questioned, he didn't say, oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, Peter, uh, John, just, just go ahead and wash your hands. No, 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 no. He did not respect the traditions of men. And here you have a good example. These traditions are ancient. Right? These are long established. The traditions from the Talmud, which is what this is from, the Jewish oral law, went way back. Way back. And so we have an application here. Because Lent is also very old. But there, listen now, there is not one solitary letter of Scripture in which God enjoins this festival, not one. But then are we then, though, because it is so ancient, this practice goes back to the fourth century at least, are we then to submit to it and take part in it and, and, and make it incumbent upon ourselves to participate in these rituals that are long established traditions of the Christian church, no less? Well, the Lord didn't. What did the Lord go back to? The Bible. The Bible. That is what He followed. So you might say that Jesus believed that the Word of God, the Scripture, was the sole authority for what He did and practiced. He did not confuse the two. 
I want to tell you something. To many people, how ancient a practice is lends it legitimacy. Especially, see, what's happening, what's happening in our society is this. Is postmodernism is trying to unravel all the moorings of society. That's what it's trying to unravel. We have, uh, we have uh, somebody help me with some of these words I'm going to forget. But uh, relativism, where there is no right, there is no wrong, your truth, my truth. You know, all, the very basics of the assumptions of, of what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, and all those things down to, right down to, to your chromosomes and all that stuff. All of that is being questioned and it's unraveling society. And so in response to that, some people in responding to that have, have just shifted hard in the direction of tradition. That's what they've done. They want to go back to practices and traditions and, uh, and orders and ordinances that have a long-standing history. Right? They feel comfortable in that because look at all the people that have practiced it and it's so ancient and so it's proven and all these things. That, that, it's a response. And so they think, well, since this is ancient, since this is ancient, it, it, you know, it must be right, especially when you scatter a little bit of Bible in there, like the 40 days. See, it's like Jesus fasting in the wilderness or like Moses on the mount or like Elijah, you know, you know, you, you scatter a little, you know, the ashes of like, you know, how could it be wrong after all? I mean, Esther, you know, uh, Daniel, sackcloth and ash. I mean, this, we're just doing that. No, you're not. You're not. No matter how ancient a practice is, it is always to be judged by the scripture. The scripture. And listen now, please. This, what I'm describing you right now, is the chief distinction between the Bible being our sole authority and those that hold that church tradition and the Bible are authorities. That is the difference. You see, what we say when we say when we what we mean when we say the Bible is our sole rule for faith and practice. Here's what that means. And that's a common Baptist saying, right? But this is not about Baptists, right? What we mean is that there is no other authority, and whatever we believe and do, especially as it relates to religious matters, and I mean uh, liturgy, uh, ordinances in the church. Christian calendars and all that stuff, that's definitely in that realm, right? What we require is that its source can be found in the actual text of the Bible. Not, not hints of it, but the actual thing. Like, we practice baptism. We practice the Lord's Supper, right? You know why? Because the Bible itself tells us to. It's not a tradition. We don't practice immersion. This is also, listen now, this is also why we practice uh, believers' baptism by immersion. I know some people that that are of the Lutheran persuasion, and they acknowledge that infant baptism, which they practice, is not biblical. They acknowledge it. You know, you read some of the older commentaries, and they will bend over backwards to try to prove. We've covered that in Acts some, right? Try, they'll try to prove that infant baptism was practiced in the New Testament, but it, it wasn't. Like it, I mean, you really have to bend yourself up in a pretzel to, to get that. But they'll say that, but, but, but some honest people will be like, you know what? Okay, it's not in the Bible. 
But isn't it a beautiful picture of a, of a, of a covenant child coming into the covenant? No, it's not in the Bible. And the Bible is the rule. I don't care how ancient the practice is. Infant baptism goes way, even, even before Lent, way back. Way back. Everything. Augustine, church fathers, I don't care what it is. I don't care what church it is. I don't care what pope it is. I don't care. Every single thing is to be judged by the scripture alone. This is a chief distinction between being a Bible Christian and being a, a Christian of the in the we might say in the a historical Christian. It's more important to be a Bible Christian. Go back to the source. Now, speaking of tradition, uh, tradition. Look at Second Timothy, Second Thessalonians, rather, really quick. Second Thessalonians, chapter two. The Bible does mention tradition in two ways, in particular. One, we've already looked at how the, the Jews were using tradition and kind of doing a bait and switch. They were treating tradition as equal to the commandments of God. Hey, that's familiar, right? And then tradition is also mentioned in a positive way, which is, which is here in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse number 15. Notice what it says, and then look at chapter 3 as well. Verse 15 of chapter 2 says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions, now stop, somebody would read that who is, who is intent and predisposed to follow church traditions like I'm describing. And they read into it something that's there. See, we should follow church tradition like Lent, like the liturgical calendar and all these things. But read it, keep reading. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Whose epistle? Paul's epistle. That is this what we're reading right here. That's the Bible. Chapter 3, verse... I lost my verse there. Thank you. I wrote down 216, 215, and 216. It's 3-6, uh, two, six, rather. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after tr the tradition which he received of us. Notice that? That's the apostles. That's the apostles. That's the writers of Scripture. They're, they're the ones who had uniquely had direct, direct connection to Christ. And they all died. And in their place, after they died, they left the New Testament. You so, so even tradition in the biblical sense, which is good, which we should follow, is based on the Scripture. It comes directly from the Scripture. So we're not against tradition as long as it's biblical. Just put it like that. Furthermore, as priests of God, we have direct access to God. And because we possess the Spirit of God as individuals, each and every one of us, we have His aid in interpreting the Scriptures ourselves individually. Right? That's what the Bible teaches. This is why the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer is so important. 
We are not depending on church decrees to tell us what the Bible says that we should do. We read it ourselves. And so each one of us can look at something like Lent and examine it by the Bible. We don't have, oh, well, the church said to do it, so I guess we'll do it. And this is what distinguishes us from other Christian groups because we rely solely upon the Scripture. And we insist that what we do comes from the text of the Bible. Now, let me hurry to the end. There's something called the liturgical year. It's also called the Christian calendar. And within that liturgical year are, depending on which one you look at, there are four feasts. Advent, Christmas, Lent, and the Easter Triduum, which is Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. Okay? I'm just reading what it says. Now, here's the problem with the liturgical year. See, here's the thing. The liturgical year is patterned, and the feasts are patterned after the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, they had a... a, uh, they had a year, and at certain times of the year, there were certain things, certain, certain festivals had to be done. And so what happened is, because Roman Catholicism is by its nature amillennial, and they believe in replacement theology. Anybody know what that, Brother David, tell us what replacement theology is, you know. Exactly. So Roman Catholicism teaches that the church has replaced Israel. But instead of the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and all the other feasts, the church has its own feasts that are to be carried out at certain times of the year. Here's the problem. There's not a word of Scripture anywhere about that. You look in the Old Testament for Israel, you see Passover, first day of the, uh, the 14th day of the first month. It's actually clearly listed and it follows the exact pattern of what happened to Israel so that they would have a memorial to remember what God had done with them. Not so. Look, for the 40 days Christ fasted, we don't know what month that was. How does that relate to the whole, the, the count? It has nothing to do with it whatsoever. So what has been assembled because the, the church has supposedly replaced Israel and has its own feasts is following that pattern. Even, listen now, even the priesthood itself in church, in Protestant, in, in the Catholic church, the priesthood itself is built upon the idea of the Old Testament priesthood. You see, it's just the Christian version. Now here's the problem. We know the grave doctrinal and practical error of the Roman Catholic Church. Why would I, therefore, take my cues from their liturgical year? I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And furthermore, the traditions of the church, which are often used as the basis for many of these liturgical things, have largely been established by the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not going to allow the the Catholic Church to be the source of my practice as a Christian. They're not the ones that are going to give me cues. They're already claiming that they're the one true church to begin with. The Word of God alone is that source. 
Now, I'll just say it like this, and you know, we're, we're getting close to being done. There is not a word of Scripture to support any such liturgical calendar, feast days, or any of these, any of these festivals that are supposedly Christian festivals that have been practiced for 1,700 years. Not a word. Even Christmas and Easter. There is nowhere in the Bible that says what day Jesus was born. There is nowhere in the Bible that gives specifics about the resurrection of Christ as to its timing. Except we knew it was related to the Jewish Passover. Because obviously Christ died at that time. And certainly there is nowhere in the Bible in which the Lord enjoins us or sets a pattern or does anything remotely of the sort to give us guidance as to to, to practice some liturgy or some ceremony. It's just not there. It's just not there. Now we have two, as I mentioned, we have baptism, we have the Lord's Supper. Neither one of them are tied to the calendar. Baptism is done when a person believes, right? The Lord's Supper is done as often as ye will, as often as ye do. That's it. So, Listen, I, I know at Christmas time and Easter time, you know, we, we'll have a special day on, uh, on the Resurrection Sunday. I don't even like to say the word Easter, to be honest with you, or Christmas. I just, that's, not, that's not something I do. I don't like it. I don't like, I don't like nodding my head and, and tipping my hat to that. I don't. It's just me. We recognize the Lord was born, but here, here's the thing I want you to understand. At Christmas and Easter, which are two of these feasts, right, We recognize and acknowledge Christ's birth and His resurrection, obviously. Why? Because we believe the Bible, right? But the feasts themselves are not commanded in Scripture. The historical facts of Christ's resurrection and Christ's birth are in the Scripture. But the feast and the ceremonies, the liturgy, are not found in Scripture. And we cannot confuse the two. Just because somebody says, oh, this is Advent, and Jesus did come into the world, doesn't mean that because Jesus came into the world, we're obligated to practice the ceremonies of Advent or Lent or whatever. We're not. We're not. Rather, the opposite. Again, it goes back to the Bible. It goes back to the Bible. Now, here's some problems with various aspects of Lent. First of all, you have the problem with holy days to begin with. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Let no man judge you in respect of holy days. Because in the New Testament church, there are no holy days. There are no holidays at all. You say, well, we have, we have, no, no, there aren't. In the text of Scripture, there aren't. Now, as a church, we might decide we want to have special days and things like that, and that's fine. But as to the text of Scripture, it's not there. So there's a problem with holy days to begin with, right? We are a spiritual people, not tied to calendar days. And the eternal truths we have are eternal truths. They're not tied to yearly whatevers, yearly memorials and things like that. The exception, the only exception is being baptism in the Lord's Supper because those are directly mentioned in Scripture. Fasting. Fasting is a problem too. Look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. First of all, say from the outset, what they call fasting during Lent is not fasting. <laughs> it's called dieting. In the Bible, every time someone fasted, they did not eat food. That would be really hard to do. 
for 40 days. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 says this, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, that means food, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. You see, as a result of this, of this season of Lent, it is not suggested, but commanded to fast. Now I know some of the more liberal Protestant denominations, they, they don't want to be too strict. So they go, well, you know, you ought to pick up what your Lenten sacrifice is going to be. And, and all, the, all the ladies are like, well, I won't go get chocolate or I won't go to Starbucks. You know, that's what they do. My wife tells me, I don't pay attention to that, but that's what she tells me. That's not fasting. That's not biblical fasting. Furthermore, nowhere in the Bible is there a place when anyone is commanded or encouraged to fast for 40 days prior to the crucifixion. It's just not there. And the 40-day fast to commemorate Jesus' wilderness fasting has nothing to do with Holy Week. In fact, it was three years before Holy Week. It has nothing to do with it. And then, of course, like I said, they'll compare the Old Testament feasts with the New Testament, right? This is why we do it, just like they did in the Old Testament. It's just the New Testament version. Well, hold on. In the Passover that I mentioned earlier, Besides all of those things related that we've already seen, God commanded in the Scripture that they observe the Passover on the 14th day of every first month, right? That means it was biblical. It wasn't this traditional thing carried on. Then you have the subject of ashes, putting the sign of the cross. That's superstitious. There is nothing special about the cross. You know what the cross is? The cross is an instrument of torture and death used by the Romans. That's what it is. It's not an amulet. It has no power. It, it doesn't ward off evil spirits or bad luck. It doesn't do any of that. But putting ashes on your head during Ash Wednesday is not the same as putting sackcloth and ashes on in mourning. You know what that means? It is merely a ceremonial form that has no basis in the Bible at all. Now, if you want to put ashes and sackcloth on because you're mourning, you go right ahead. It was actually a cultural thing. But that ceremony is totally absent from the Bible. That's why it's so hard to talk about. Then you have the issue of repentance, which we've already talked about. But what does it say when you say when you encourage people to, to, to repent on a specific calendar day or set of calendar days, what about all the rest of the year? Is it okay to not? And so, finally we get to the very end. And there's some people, the bridge builders among us, the people who are looking for a path of compromise. And they say, admitted, they admit finally, okay, Lent is obviously not taught in the Bible. It is just a tradition. The Lord never commands it. But what is the harm in it anyway? What's the harm? What's wrong with fasting to get closer to God? 
before Easter. Here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with desiring to get closer to God, and there's nothing wrong with fasting, and there's nothing wrong with repenting. There's nothing wrong with preparing one's heart to seek God. 2 Chronicles 12, 14 says, And he did evil, Rehoboam, because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. That It's okay to do that. It's all fine and good. But the problem is, to participate in it is to take your cues in matters religious and spiritual from people that, number one, do not hold to the scriptural truths, number one. Number two, these practices do not find their source in the Bible at all. And you know what? If we unlatch ourselves from the Bible and just say, well, there's no harm in it. I'm just going to go along. It's old. You know, I'm just going to kind of go along with it. There is no telling where, it will end, where you will end up. If you can find any practice that's old, you'll end up, you, you could be subject to doing it. So it's not a matter of harm. But we should be taking our cues not, not from certain religious groups and the tradition of men, certainly, certainly not. We should be taking our cues from the Scripture itself. Let's pray together.